it's estimated that between 500,000 and 1 million Tutsis were killed. Now, that range in that number was because there was chaos, because there were mass graves, and because the Hutus went in and killed whole families and whole tribal areas. So there was no one left to report who was missing. Approximately 500,000 women were raped. The evil and darkness were profound and inexplicable by human terms. It was as if an evil army of spiritual demons had just taken over this supposedly Christian nation. What was even more remarkable was the redemption that occurred afterwards as the nation healed and forgiveness was rendered by the Tutsis who had survived. Forgiveness offered in Christ. It too was beyond human comprehension. It was as if a great spiritual battle was taking place. How do we make sense of that level of evil? How do we combat it? Well, what does Scripture teach us? Well, in the Old Testament, Satan is mentioned. He's the head of all evil. Satan is mentioned in three books, actually 16 total times. And most of those occur in Job. The devil is never mentioned in the Old Testament. The only instance of possession is of Saul, who had an evil spirit. And there's one mention of a spiritual battle in the heavenlies in Daniel chapter 10, and God did send an evil spirit over Abimelech and the um, people that he was governing over in Judges. So evil is real in the Old Testament, but the demonic gets small billing. Now this increases dramatically in the first century when Christ was on earth, and that probably was in reaction to what God was going to do through Jesus Christ. Just as there is and there will be an increase in demonic manifestations as the end of this age nears. In the Pauline letters, some mention is made of rulers and authorities or Satan himself in every one of his letters except Philemon. It's mentioned in three of the four Gospels as well as Peter and John's letters to the churches. Does it continue on today? Some would say, no, it doesn't. It's just a byproduct of a superstitious, non-scientific culture. Well, if that's the case, why do exorcisms still occur all around the world? Across the world, there are 750 priests in the Association of Exorcists. One local priest from Indianapolis, not too far from us, gets 3,500 requests per year for his services of deliverance from demons. He states unequivocally that evil spiritual beings exist, are very real, and very powerful. In our passage today, in Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 20, Paul confronts the Ephesian church with the reality of the spiritual battle that's raging all around them. Now, Paul has spent two chapters telling the Ephesians how they should now live in light of all that Christ had done for them. Now he closes his letter by saying, it's hard to live righteously and purely in this world. The reason? There are powerful spiritual forces arrayed against the Ephesians, arrayed against us, arrayed against God. 
Paul's alluded to these forces previously in chapter 2, verses 2, when he was talking about the prince of the power of the air. And in chapter 4, verse 27, when he actually names the devil himself. But the question is, why did Paul invoke this image of spiritual warfare with the Ephesians and not in the sister letter to the Colossian church? Well, certainly because there was a significant element of demonic spiritual activities in Ephesus, as seen in Acts chapter 19, verses 8 through 41. If you remember that text, um, there were seven sons of Sceva. Sceva was a high priest in the Jewish synagogue of Ephesus. And they wanted to emulate what Paul was doing by casting out demons. And so they went to try to cast out a demon in a man. And the demon in the man said to them, Jesus I know, and Paul I'm acquainted with. But who are you? Because they had no relationship with Jesus Christ. And the demon in that man proceeded to trounce those men and beat them up and overcome them. Now, we also know that there was sorcery going on in Ephesus as there were sorcerers who had come to faith in Jesus Christ. And when they did that, they got together and they burned their valuable books of sorcery. So obviously, this was an issue in Ephesus. But I believe the canon of Scripture points to a broader battle of evil in which we all are involved. And remember, Jesus taught his disciples to pray for deliverance from the evil one in the Lord's Prayer, which we recite often. And Jesus, in his last prayer in John 17, 15, asked the Father to protect the disciples from the evil one. So it obviously was on Jesus' radar. It was an important concern to Jesus. And so it should be an important concern to us as well. So how were the Ephesians to conduct spiritual warfare against such a powerful enemy? Well, Paul inspirationally combines two of the main points of his letters and tells the Ephesians and us to remember who we are in Christ, that we are united with him by maintaining a deep relationship through the power of the Holy Spirit. Thus, we can stand strong against evil as we are empowered to live like Christ and battle evil in this present age. Now, it's important to realize there are two errors here that we need to avoid. First, don't just ignore the forces of evil, pretending that they just don't exist, they're not out there. Second, don't overly fear or be overwhelmed by them. Understand that Christ has defeated these forces and will ultimately destroy them completely. Until then, from Earth's vantage point, evil may seem to win some battles. As the author of this passage, Paul would soon find out as he will be executed by the emperor of Rome and whatever evil spiritual forces were driving him. But the war for the rest of eternity has already been won in and by Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Almighty Father, I ask you this morning to open our eyes to see the spiritual battle raging around us perhaps raging within us. May we be enabled by your Holy Spirit to stand strong in this evil age, in your power, through your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us to put on all the armor and to take up all the weapons that you have given us. And help us to stay in relationship with you through Jesus in continuous prayer.
Help us, Father, to accomplish the mission that you have given us until Christ returns and destroys evil once for all. These things I pray in his mighty name. Amen. This morning we're going to read our text, Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 20, in three sections. And in this first section, verses 10 through 12, we will see that our duty is to stand in Christ as we battle Satan and his minions. Follow along as I read, starting with verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul now finishes his letter by describing the enemy that the Ephesians are facing as they try and live in Christ and try to advance Christ's kingdom purposes. The enemy is made up of powerful spiritual beings opposed to God and opposed to God's people, with their chief being the devil, or as he's called in Hebrew, Satan, which means adversary, adversary to God. The Ephesians' goal is to stand strong against the schemes of the devil and his demons. But how does one stand strong against a spiritual being? Well, the answer is what Paul has already told Ephesians, by getting your power from Christ. The same power in chapter 1, verse 19, that raised Jesus from the dead and has given him all authority, will now empower believers to overcome the dark and evil spiritual powers of this world. Now, this power is not like plugging your electric car in and waiting for it to charge. It's not a passive event. This power is based on a dependent relationship with Jesus through his Holy Spirit. It's born out of an ongoing, abiding relationship with Christ. Unlike our power, Christ's power is limitless. And it's already been proven victorious against the devil and his minion. Now, Paul uses three imperatives in this text, or three commands. The first, be strong. The second, put on. The third, stand. So we are strong when we get our strength from Christ. The empowering is continuous. So how do we stand strong? Well, by putting on the full armor of God. Well, what's that? Well, the armor that is God himself, the gifts that he has appropriated to us, which is the same as Paul talked about in chapter 4, verse 24, and other places where he talks about us putting on our new selves, because we are a new creation now in Christ, and we are taking on Christ's attributes. And in chapter 5, verse 1, where Paul calls the Ephesians to be imitators of God, we're to take on God's characteristics and live them out in our lives. Finally, Paul commands them to stand in Christ. Now, stand is used four times for emphasis in these verses, 11, 13, and 14. And it has not only this defensive mindset of, of stand your ground against evil, but also it has an offensive idea of advancing. 
So to stand, it connotes strength, stability, control in a conflict, balance, but also preparation. When we're defeated, what happens? We fall to our knees or onto our back. Why? Because we've lost control. Think of uh, football linemen, offensive and defensive linemen. They use their strength, they use their balance, and they try to get their enemy off balance so they can accomplish their mission. That's what the image that Paul is giving us here. In Christ, we're strong enough for victory to stand and bring down our enemy. Now, there is no going along to get along with evil. This is a battle. Although the command in this text is to stand firm, it doesn't mean stand still. We have a mission to take the gospel into the world and to share who Christ is and what he's accomplished for us. Now, it's important to note that these three imperatives that Paul is using here are in the plural, meaning we do this in community, to stand together as one body in Christ. Now, when Paul talks about the schemes of the devil, those are many. They could be external to us. They could be internal to us. But they are always going to be evil. It may be a trial of sickness in your family or yourself, or a financial loss, or a relationship disruption that's important to you. Satan will try to do in those times, he'll try to get you to doubt God, to doubt God's character to doubt God's goodness and the fact that his love endures forever. Or he'll try to get you to doubt who you are in Christ. In other words, he'll try to get you to doubt God's plan of salvation. He may tempt you to sin by pushing you the way you're already leaning into your weaknesses. We all have them. Into the old way of Christ before we lived, before we came to Christ. And at times it will look legitimate. It will look even like it's desirable or something attractive, but it's all just bait and camouflage. Peter reminds us that the devil is roaming around. He's watching. He's looking for a chink in your armor, a place he can penetrate and attack you. 2 Corinthians 11.14 reminds us that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. Now, Paul describes our conflict here as wrestling. And if you've wrestled, you know what this means. It it connotes a a close hand-to-hand battle. It means it's up close and personal for us. Now, you may in your mind picturing a wrestling match, but Paul goes on to say we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, which means we don't wrestle against humans. It's a spiritual battle. That doesn't mean humans may not be involved because sometimes dark spiritual forces will use humans as pawns. Now, Paul is repeating here what he said in chapter 1, verse 21, when he talked about all rule and authority, which means Paul was describing these uh, demonic beings. Here, he piles up terms for these beings for rhetorical effect. We are not to see some hierarchy in this uh, language, as some have suggested. Satan may have a hierarchy, but that's not Paul's point by using this language. Now, Paul saw pagan idolatry is being animated by dynamic spirits, meaning if they had an idol or a Roman Greek or Greek god and they manifested some power, it was only because there was the demonic being behind that idol or behind those gods, supposed gods. The Christian, these, Paul describes these demonic beings as being from the realm of darkness where evil and death exist. 
But the great news is that Christians have been transferred out of that realm of darkness and now, as we sang, are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. What does that mean, in the heavenlies? It means in the heaven's reality, as it appears to God and his forces are good. So our struggle from a heaven's viewpoint is against subjected powers, meaning these powers have already been defeated. The powers may rule in darkness, but again, we in Christ no longer live there, and that's great news. So we see from this first section that there is much at stake in this great battle. We're up against a formidable enemy, but God has given us in Christ all that we need to be victorious. Now in this next section, verses 13 through 17, Paul describes the weapons that God has given us so we can stand firm. Follow along as I read, starting with verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Paul was constantly either around Roman soldiers guarding him, or at this time he may have been chained to them. And he undoubtedly drew inspiration from them for this armor metaphor. But he also depended on passages from Isaiah, three in particular, Isaiah 59, 17, where Isaiah sees God as a divine warrior. There it states, he, meaning God or Yahweh, put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Paul also used Isaiah 11.5, Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And then Isaiah 52.7, which is the text we looked at previously when we looked at the prophets, a great passage. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. So how do we stand? By putting on the armor of God. Just as the Roman soldier put on the uniform of Rome, we now as followers of Christ put on God's uniform, God's armor. Whether Jew or Gentile, slave or master, man or woman, we all put on the same armor of God. Now, this armor is made up of seven of God's characteristics. Paul describes six different components, but seven of God's characteristics, either is his or that he has given to us. Truth, righteousness, the gospel, salvation, peace, faith, and the word of God. Now, in the evil day in verse 13 means whenever you encounter evil, but it also has some end-time connotations. In chapter 5, 16, verse 16, Paul says the days are evil, which means we live in an age that has evil. 
because evil will come after us in this stage, it's imperative that we grow deeper in the knowledge of God's gifts and cultivate the practices essential to build up the power of God in Christ in us. So being in Christ means living so close to him that we appropriate the resources that he possesses as risen Lord. So the focus here is on the qualities, not the armor. Don't get hung up on the armor. The armor is just a background metaphor for this battle that we're in, a spiritual battle. So our first piece of armor is the belt of truth. Now, this truth refers to the gospel of Christ, which results in us living truthful lives. In chapter 4, verse 21, Paul said that Christ is the truth. And in chapter 4, verse 15, it states that believers in Christ speak truth. It means taking on God's truth in Christ and allowing it to affect the way that we live. Now remember, the evil one revels in deception and lies, so the truth of who we are in Christ and what Christ has done is essential to defeat the evil one, as well as us living with integrity and honesty. When we lie, we use a tool of the devil who Jesus called the father of lies. And we grieve the Holy Spirit and we open ourselves up to Satan's attack. Now, the second piece of armor is the breastplate of righteousness, which means we act like God in our actions. We're given righteousness as a gift from God in Christ. We put on Christ's moral integrity through the power of the Holy Spirit. Christ's righteousness protects our hearts like a shield would and defeats unrighteousness. Now, remember, the evil one will often attack us by telling us how unworthy we are, how sinful we are, how far we are from God. But that is a lie. As believers, we stand in Christ and in his righteousness, and we now become part of the family of God. We are brothers and sisters to Christ himself. So this status will also produce righteous living in us through the Holy Spirit's power, which is a process we call sanctification, being made holy like Christ. If we forget our status, we become vulnerable to the devil's attacks and we will fail and fall into sin. Now third, our feet fitted with the gospel of peace, which means a knowledge of the gospel and a readiness to share the gospel, which is the only way people can find peace with God. The Holy Spirit will make people alert to share the gospel and will make us ready to live in this age of evil. The elders, when we meet together, we often share with each other opportunities God has given us to share the gospel. And one of the best at this is Mark Connell. He's our local evangelist on the elder board. And he's always telling us great stories. Whenever he's on a flight or he has a Uber, he's always praying to God, who can I share the gospel with? And on the more recent flight that he was on, he, it looked like the devil may have won because nobody was sitting next to him. Nobody was sitting in the aisle apart, across from him. So he said, God, what am I going to do? And God allowed him to minister in a mighty way to the people sitting behind him across the aisle. It's always good to reach out to people across the aisle. So we have been, we've been taught in the school of Christ, and we now are careful with our words and actions. It means 
living wisely and understanding the times we live in, redeeming the time to align with God's will. Such people not only share the good news, but they're agents of peace and love, ready to do the whole will of God. Now this phrase, the gospel of peace, reminds us this armor is just a metaphor. When we battle evil, when we share the gospel by producing love and peace, never violence. Violence is not part of this picture. God's plan through Christ is how evil forces are defeated, and that should be our message that we prepare to take to the world. The presentation of the gospel message in Christ is a frontal assault on the kingdom of Satan. That message frees captives from Satan's domain. I have a question for you. How often do we taste defeat as we fail to share the gospel message with those that Christ present to us? That's a choice. But we don't have to live that way according to this passage. The next two components of armor are commanded to be received or taken up. And the first is the shield of faith. That faith, it refers to our faith in God. God is our shield. God is our protection from the attacks of the enemy. Paul states that, excuse me, Peter states that our, it's our faith that helps us resist the devil. Now, in Old Testament times, their shields were made of wood, and they would put uh, leather on the front of them, and the enemies sometimes, what they would do is, nasty as they were, they'd take their arrows, put a rag on the end of it, dip it in tar, light it on fire, and then shoot those arrows at the Israelites. And of course, if it, caught, if it got you, you'd burn up. So they would wet their shields, and that would extinguish those arrows so they wouldn't get burned and obviously wouldn't destroy their shield because it was made out of wood. Now, in Paul's time, these were called Roman scutum. They were taller shields like this. And I have a, a picture here that I think is a great picture. It's of a Roman troop, and the maneuver they're doing is called the tortoise because it looks like a turtle going into its shell. But I think it really demonstrates well what we can do in community as we gather and pray. Imagine one person, one Christian, getting behind his shield of faith trying to protect himself from the darts of the enemy, and he's doing great from the front, from the sides he's exposed, from the back he's exposed, from the top he's exposed. But when we gather together, we now are protected all around us from the attacks of the enemy. But these shields are not only offensive, they're also def I mean, not only defensive, but they're also offensive. They were used them to push forward together. Faith is what protects us and allows us to move forward in power in our relationship to God, our faith and our, our trust in what God has accomplished and in our new identity in Christ. That's what defeats the enemy's flaming arrows. Now, these metaphorical arrows, again, could be internal attacks like doubt or despair, or they could be external attacks like persecution and trials. It's interesting, in Ephesus, the Greek goddess Artemis was worshipped and her favorite weapons were the bow and arrow. And the Ephesians believed that if you stopped having faith in Artemis, she would shoot you with flaming arrows. So Paul was telling the Ephesians they don't have any fear of this anymore because their faith now is in Christ, and Christ is much more powerful than Artemis. So we, we need to, if we lose our shield, if we lose our faith, we're in trouble as the enemy can now fell us. And so it's important to depend on each other and help encourage each other in our faith. A great example of this was Martin Luther, he had a big family, but he had one daughter named Magdalena who got sick, 
And he prayed to God, say, oh, please heal my daughter Magdalena. But Magdalena went on to die. And it, it shattered his faith. He just couldn't understand. Why would God let this happen to my dear Magdalena? And so he called his friends. And his friends gathered around him and they prayed for him and they encouraged him in his faith and got him back into the word. And over time, they built back up his faith so that he could accomplish all that God had for him. Salvation is our fifth component of our armor. Salvation here is what God provides. It protects our minds from doubt and insecurity. We are rescued from the domain of darkness where Satan rules. We are saved from eternal death saved from God's wrath, saved from bondage to sin. And now our new position in Christ frees us from captivity. Like a helmet, it protects our minds from attacks of ownership. We are no longer slaves of evil, but now we belong to Christ. In Christ, we now share in his victory and his defeat of Satan. To put on this new identity means appropriating our new position in our lives. The good news is Satan no longer has any power over us. Hallelujah. The final sixth piece of armor is the sword of the Spirit, which Paul says is God's word. It reminds me of a song I used to, we learned when I was in VBS as a child called the B-I-B-L-E. You know it? The B-I-B-L-E, oh, that's the book for me. I stand upon the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E, woo! <laughs> Thank goodness for children's ministry. So here the Spirit interprets and empowers God's word for us. It empowers us then to proclaim it as I'm doing now. God's word protects us as it did Jesus. Remember when Jesus was tempted? The first thing after he was commissioned by the Holy Spirit, he went out into the wilderness. He fasted for 40 days and nights, and the devil came and tempted him. He was hungry. He was thirsty. How did Jesus defeat the devil? You all know each time he quoted scripture, and three times after that the devil was defeated and scurried away. But the Word is also an offensive weapon. As we share the gospel, the kingdom of Christ advances. Now, the word Paul uses here for sword describes the short Roman sword that was used in close combat. So again, we're thinking of this up-close and personal uh, combat and it's, that we all face each day. When we're in those situations, when we're up against it, the Spirit supplies to us God's word. The Spirit helps us to understand what God has said and interprets into our own lives. That's why it's so important each day to get into God's word so you can be ready for the battle. This protects us and empowers us for life. As the psalmist declared in Psalm 119.11, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Now for us, the word not only protects us, but it also penetrates those held in captivity in the realm of darkness so they too can be freed. So we've learned to find our strength in Christ, to confront powerful spiritual enemies of God by putting on the qualities of God and the characteristics that he's gifted us. Truth, righteousness, the gospel, salvation, peace, faith, and the word of God. Now, finally, Paul tells us in this last section what brings it all together in verses 18 through 20. Follow along as I read, starting with verse 18. Praying, praying at all times. How? 
in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance. Don't give up. Making supplication for all the saints, not just the ones you like. And also for me, Paul says, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Paul concludes this armor metaphor by telling us what binds it all together. Prayer. We stand against hostile powers by praying. Prayer is at the center and heart of spiritual warfare. It's the foundation for using all the other weapons. Without communication to the home base, battles are often lost, and needed supplies never get to the front lines. Paul uses the word um, all here four times to really emphasize the importance of prayer at all times, all prayer and supplication, all perseverance, and all the saints. Prayer must be continuous or ongoing, meaning it's not just the Hail Mary at the crisis point as it's born out of an ongoing dialogue in relationship to the Father through the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit. As evil attacks may be continuous against the church of Christ in the big C, so should our prayers be continuous in churches around the world. Again, this has a, a corporate feel to it as we pray together as a church with the big C. Now, what does praying in the Spirit mean? Well, in Ephesians, it means praying through the Spirit's power, seeking His guidance, His direction. The Spirit will prompt us to pray. It'll tell us who to pray for and how we should pray. The Spirit communicates God to us through His Word, and through Him we receive gifts. We receive empowering. The Spirit will even, when, we're, when we lose a battle and we're defeated and we're feeling weak, the Spirit in those moments will speak to us to God. He'll intervene for us and express what we can't express ourselves. Praying without the Spirit is like vacuuming without plugging the vacuum cleaner in. You have no power. What's the point? You're just spreading dirt around. So it's important to pray, to pray in the Spirit. Now, it's easy with prayer to fall into a spirit of ease, things are going good, so I don't need to spend as much time in prayer, or just laziness, neglecting the vital task of prayer, and missing the ever-expanding kingdom of Christ, which we'll lose if we don't communicate with God. What is he up to? You know, it's no accident that these spirit, powerful spiritual beings we've been talking about work very hard to get us all to be too busy to pray. Or maybe just push us into apathy, making us think that, well, you know, our prayers really don't matter. God's going to do what he's going to do, so what's the point of prayer? But this text is telling us, no, prayer is the glue that binds it all together. It's critical for us in the battle against evil that we pray. We need to stay alert and pray for and with each other. Now, Paul closes here with a prayer for himself as he advances the gospel as King Jesus, his ambassador. Now, he doesn't pray, notice this, he doesn't pray for his own ease or his own comfort. What does he pray for? He prays for boldness in spite of his chains. 
And when he says the mystery of the gospel, he means it's unknown until God has revealed it, meaning it has to be preached. And it has to be preached in a way that all cultures can understand. And that requires boldness. It requires creativity. It requires clarity. Paul himself right now is in a great spiritual battle. As he's Christ's ambassador, but without the diplomatic immunity. He is imprisoned, but he has a chance to share the gospel with the ruler of the known world, the emperor of Rome and the Roman leaders. He needs courage. And he looks to his friends to help him and to give him the greatest gift they can give him, to go before the throne of the king of the universe to ask for help. Acts 28, chapter, or verse 30 to 31, tell us that Paul's request was granted by God and he was given courage. To close, we live in dark times, really dark. In the end, we know very little about evil beings, and that's probably to our protection. During COVID, I stumbled upon this image they're going to throw up on the screen, which I felt portrayed what was happening all around us. We were adrift in chaos with unseen forces battling all around us. And what Paul declared, I came to see firsthand. There is an inexplicable evil trend in our culture that cannot be understood except in light of this passage. Basic fundamental truths have been abandoned and deception and death are the mark of our times. Folks tearing down all that came before with chaos and violence. That is not from God. People becoming hollow shells of evil. We come to see that evil is something beyond our ability to cope with on our own. It's outside of us, and yet often, too often, it's inside us as well. Evil presents so powerfully and so personally that we cannot help but suspect that there is a powerful spiritual power that's driving it. The experience of Satan is a brute and terrifying fact. I have experienced it personally. Once during a period of intense spiritual attack while I was dealing with significant conflict in the church I was leading, I was praying and fasting. And I became overwhelmed with this evil spiritual presence that was just terrorizing me. And as I was praying, I opened my eyes and I physically saw the demon that was terrorizing me. But I was able to overcome it in the power, in the name, and in the person of Jesus Christ. And through prayer, it vanished right out of my sight and went right through a wall. I found the peace of God in Christ. It was terrifying, and yet it was wonderful all at the same time. But it's something I hope I never have to experience again. Brothers and sisters of the bridge, God is the essential player in the universe. The devil and demons are not. We do not need them, and one day they will be removed forever. But until then, we can be confident that they have already been defeated by Christ. Christ is the only real and legitimate Lord, and the devil and demonic are illegitimate usurpers. The Bible instructs us to fear God, not the devil or demons. We can, as believers, 
be deluded by the devil, but not possessed. Deluded, but not possessed. If we aren't living in Christ, we give the devil a foothold, a a place to start attacking us. Demons don't deserve a lot of attention, but instead, avoidance. Evil and death have been defeated, and we are not to be beguiled by them. Don't focus on evil or the devil and avoid it and him by staying in Christ. That means pray, both when you're alone and when you're together. Read God's word, study it, memorize it, teach it if you can. Stay in community. It's so hard to fight this battle against evil alone. It's easy to get overcome. And finally, obey God. When you're reading, when you're praying, and you hear the Holy Spirit's voice prompting you through the word, obey God. People must be responsible for their own evil and repent and find salvation in Jesus Christ. Scripture is clear. People should be warned to stay away and avoid the devil, Satanism, and the occult. The FBI had a video it produced on dealing with an on-site shooter. And its message was, first of all, run. If you can't run, hide. And if you can't hide, then get ready to fight together. And that same message applies to the spiritual warfare. Avoid evil if possible. But if you were a follower of Christ, at some point, evil's going to find you. So be prepared for the battle by living in Christ, by being in prayer, and by using all the weapons of this passage. Christian living requires attention. Pay attention. (laughs) Wake up. Be alert to what the enemy's up to. We need a sense of urgency, an awareness of the conflict, a sense of our own danger apart from Christ. When we see evil, we need to pray against it, first and foremost. We may not be able to destroy the structure of evil, but we can gain ground in our part of the battle. The way we carry on our battles is the most eloquent witness of our faith in Christ. We may lose some battles in this age, and at times it will seem like evil is triumphing. But the end of evil is coming with the triumphant return of Christ. Let's look forward to that day. Meanwhile, Jesus asks us to continue to carry the battle to every outpost on earth and to save as many souls as possible with the great news of Jesus through the power of Christ, through the power of his Holy Spirit living in us. As Martin Luther put it, there is one word that defeats Satan. Really, one name. Really, one person, Jesus. Let's pray. Almighty God, warrior king of the universe, how we look to you to empower us, your church, through these evil times. May we take on the character of Christ and may he produce the fruits of the Spirit in us. May we stay in constant communion with you through prayer. And may your will be done. May we stand firm to the end when we will bow to our knees and worship our King Jesus. Oh, we look forward to that day.
to that coming horizon when our enemy will be destroyed forever. Until that time, we say, come Lord Jesus quickly. Amen.